I am Josiah Johnson. And I'm Marcus Johnson. And we run this station. What's good, everybody? This is Josiah, better known as King Josiah54 on the Twitters and the NBA Twitter world. This is WRTS. We run this station, Athlete First podcast channel with Uninterrupted. We are out here in beautiful Hollywood. And I'm joined, I got a special guest today on this Entry Point Pilot. First off pod we're doing here with the beautiful folks at Uninterrupted. We appreciate you, LeBron. None other than my father, five-time NBA All-Star, actor extraordinaire. You saw him on White Man Can't Jump as Raymond. Uh... Blue chips, blue chips. Obviously, uh, Castle, bunch of bunch of bunch of cameos. But uh, currently working as a broadcaster with the uh, first place Milwaukee Bucks, none other than 2019 Naismith Pro Basketball Hall of Fame finalist Marcus Johnson. Glad to be here. What's up, man? What's up? We out here getting it, man. Right. Uh, I know we've been talking about doing this for a long time, so I think it's uh it's gonna be a fun fun little thing to do. So let's get it in. So. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, obviously you're my dad, and I know, know a ton and ton and ton and ton of shit about you, but I feel like there's a lot of people in the world who kind of, they only look at you and they see you, oh, this is the guy from, from White Man Can't Jump, this is the guy who robbed the liquor store, not realizing that you were college player of the year, five-time All-Star, gave some of the, yeah. the biggest and best names in the 80s and early 90s buckets, and, uh, you know, don't, don't really know you from your NBA I mean, I see with a lot of current guys, even guys I play with at UCLA, don't really know your exploits, so... We're going to really use this pod to kind of just, you know, update the world, the younger generation. These kids nowadays, they're kind of, you know, they're so engulfed. In, in so it's t- like, this is your basketball life, Marcus Johnson. Yeah, you know, yeah, a basketball right. odyssey or something, okay. you know, basketball something along, those, <laughs> something along that's, those lines. That's a journey with a lot of adventure, yeah. I got, I got, I got a bunch of those. So, yeah, we're yeah, we right, right on the same page, man. So you just celebrated your 63rd birthday in February. Obviously, we did the, uh, you know, you celebrated every year with the birthday dunk. And I think that's where you kind of gotten a lot of mainstream attention nowadays. But... Take me back 1956, you know, growing up in Louisiana. First off, you know, when, when, when I looked at you, as I got older and I kind of saw the common spelling of the name Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, and, and how you do it with the elaborate way, the M-A-R-Q-U-E-S, just how, how did you get named Marcus, the M-A-R-Q-U-E-S? Yeah, well, that goes back to the 50s. Uh, my dad, Jeff Johnson, was a successful high school basketball coach at Natchitoches Central High School. That's the school that produced Joe Dumars uh, years and years later, but... Um, so my dad was a big basketball aficionado, and he would go and watch the Harlem Globetrotters back in the 50s. So he saw him in Shreveport play three or four times. And there was a player on the Globetrotters by the name of Marcus Haynes, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S, Haynes. And so my dad was enamored with his ball handling skills. He was the greatest dribbler in the world uh, back in those days. It wasn't many opportunities for African-Americans to play professionally other than barnstorming with the Globetrotters. Before that, the New York Rens and teams like that. And so uh, my dad said that, uh, you know, this guy is so good that if I have a son, I'm going to name him Marcus. And so uh, I was born in 1956, and that's the, the name that he gave me. So I was, uh, I was pretty much destined to, <laughs> to play basketball from birth, having a father who was a high school coach, being named after one of the greatest uh, players of, of that era. And so that's how I got the name Marcus. And growing up, I know, I know my, my name being Josiah, which you would think is easy to, uh, to pronounce and spell, but growing up, how much, how much kind of difficulty did you get picked on, bullied, or anything teased at all for kind of having the weird yeah, misspelling? Yeah, you know, just, just, I mean, nobody could ever figure it out. Marquez, yeah. you know, Marquise, yes. you know, it was, I was getting all that, you know, and then I'd have to uh, just kind of give them the point blank, no, Marcus, and they'd be like, oh, like M-A-R-C-U-S, like, yeah, but 
you know, and it still pisses me off today when people will will post something or send me something or do whatever. They spell it M-A-R-C-U-S. It's just a little thing of mine. You know, I don't know. You know, just have, have some respect to know how to spell the name. That's all. I feel like the worst is when I see you like email people. I'll be in chains with you and somebody will respond with the M-A-R-C-U. <laughs> and it's like, come on, like, bro, yeah. check the fucking check. the check the. Uh, yeah, I'll <laughs> signature it off M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. And then they'll start it off. So Marcus M-A-R-C-U-S. And I'm like, you know, that, so right away, it's just like, you know, that just throws a whole whole damper on the whole whatever the email is about so yeah and then uh you know obviously growing up in louisiana kind of dealing with, with with the with the south the civil rights movement all that stuff what was what was your first introduction to the game of basketball kind of how did how did you get into it and when did you kind of fall in love with the well, game? well you know i fell in love with it at an early age and, and i remember this you know vaguely remembrances but but my mom you know and, and my father over the years told me when my dad was a high school coach and he was a hell of a high school coach. Guys still come up to me 60 years later and talk about some of the stuff he was doing back in the day in terms of conditioning and footwork and drills and all that. But my dad would sit me on the bench right next to him during the games. So he's coaching. I'm seated right next to him. During timeouts and halftime breaks, I would take a ball. I would dribble up and down the floor. And those games were packed back in those days, and the crowd would just go crazy. This little three-year-old, just speed dribbling back and just forth. Just by yourself just, solo. Just speed dribbling, just speed dribbling, just up and down, back and forth, back and forth like crazy. And that was kind of my cue. As soon as, as soon as there was a break in the action, and my mom said, I called it dibble. But I'd get the ball, I'd dibble, I'd dibble that bitch up and down the floor <laughs> like, 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 like a maniac. And everybody in the stands would go nuts. And, and, and again, you know, I don't remember vividly, obviously, it was too long ago, but there is some, some faint memories of just kind of doing that. And mainly it was the adulation, the applause, and, and, the, and the crowd going nuts. And, and that's when the entertainment value, I think, of, of basketball kind of really first, uh, I, I really first became aware of that. And how, how old were you at that point? Three, three years old. Three, three years three, old. Three, four years old, yeah. So, so do you think long term that that experience kind of seeing seeing the way the crowd responded and seeing kind of the the adoration and the applause and all the type of shit you would get for doing that the kind of had some some impact on your psyche growing oh, later oh, on? Oh, oh, without question, without question. I mean, a funny story. I mean, so we so we fast forward back to the early '80s. I'm on a NBA tour in Tokyo with a bunch of great players: Moses Malone and Adrian Dantley and Kermit Washington and Tiny Archibald and all these great great legends. And so we're playing in front of 15,000 people in Tokyo. And so I'm the first one out to come warm up. And so I come out and I'm shooting some jumpers and it was so quiet. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Nobody, 15,000 people, they're not saying a word. They're real polite, the Japanese, real polite. So I shoot a shot, miss it. I get the ball and I dunk it real easily. And the crowd goes, oh, I'm like, okay. So then I take the ball again and I do a little reverse dunk and they go, oh. So I so, okay, I see what these, I see what they want. So I start doing all kind of just like, you know, windmills and, 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 and double pump reverse. Oh, oh. They start applauding and, and by, it's all, by the time it's all over, they're giving me a standing ovation. This is before anybody else ever comes out there. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but, but, but I, I hark it back to like, you know, it probably was a connection back to that three year old in, 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 in the front of that high school crowd in Natchitoches, Louisiana, and kind of getting that response. But it was always about giving the people what they want. And that was kind of one of the approaches that I think I took is looking at basketball, not just strictly as a sport, but the entertainment value and, and giving people some enjoyment in terms of what you were doing on the floor. So I didn't go overboard with it. You know, I was a real fundamentally sound player, but there was an element of flair that I like to bring to the table just because I know how I am. And I'm watching somebody who I grew up loved to watch, like a Dr. Jerry Elgin Bader or somebody like that. Connie Hawkins back in the day, uh, I understand just kind of what that can do to people. Okay, we're we gonna get to the to all the dunking and all that good shit uh, a little bit later on, but just just for, flipping back to to honestly your early life and kind of 
growing up in Louisiana, dealing in the South, dealing with kind of the racism and all that shit going on. How did how did you and the family end up moving and relocating to Man, Los Angeles? Well, look, yeah, <laughs> a couple of stories with that. So, so they had a, a, a riverfront area down in Natchitoches. Real, real, I mean, real beautiful. Steel Magnolias, that, that film was made there. Really beautiful southern, quaint southern city, especially if you're white. But you know, if you're black, it wouldn't, I guess, quite as quaint. But, but uh, a couple of stories with that. Um, so we're down on the, on, on, on the river, uh, river area of the city, lights and all that, Christmas time. So all the blacks are on one side of the street. I'm probably four years old at the time. Uh, all the whites on the other side of the street. Here comes white Santa Claus right down the middle uh, on like a little, I don't know, it was, you know, reindeer and all that. Didn't have reindeer, but it was like a Santa sleigh type thing being pulled by whatever. And so Santa's just throwing candy to the white side of the street. He throws no candy whatsoever to the black side. And I asked my mom, you know, you know, what's going on? How come he's not throwing, you know, candy over here? And she's just like, you know, I'll tell you, I, you have to explain that to you one day, baby. It's okay. I mean, we'll, we'll get, you know, and so that was kind of the first semblance of racism that I can I can consciously remember then there was a segregated swimming pool so we go to the swimming pool I remember the first time going to the public pool me and my sisters and my uncle junior he was kind of supervising us and so there was a colored only section and it didn't really register at that time like there was really anything wrong with that it was just something that was that that just just accepted at that time but uh, I do remember at four years old never having been in a pool never swam Ever before in my life, I just I just took a run and start Joe, and I jumped in the pool head first, you know, just thinking I don't know I don't know what the hell I was thinking. But my uncle was like that's this fool. He jumped in after me and then pulled me out. But but that was kind of the first really uh, signs of segregation. Now you know my dad, you know his best friend that passed away recently, Uncle Charlie, Doctor Charles Mayfield. He uh, was the only doctor in town, and he got uh, crosses burned on his front line by, by the Ku Klux Klan. He got death threats. And so instead of practicing in Natchitoches, practicing medicine, he was an MD, um, he had to go to Shreveport about an hour away and, and, and stay gone for two or three days at a time so he could support his family. And, and because the death threats were so pervasive and prevalent and just, just spiteful, you know, nigga, we, you know, we're going we gonna to kill your family, we're going to burn your house, we're going to rape your wife, we're going to do all this stuff. So my dad and some of his cohorts, they stood guard with shotguns all night long in front of my uncle's house. I call it my uncle, but really my dad's best friend, Charles Mayfield, and they, they wouldn't allow that to happen. And, uh, and so we're still friends to this day with the Mayfields because of that common bond. But it was a lot of that going on at the time. So all that to say, my dad and mom, uh, my father had been out here in the Army in, in Los Angeles, and uh, he said if you ever got a chance to go back, he was going to come back, and um, he did uh, in 1961. Okay. And just you know, making that move, Louisiana kind of what was the culture shock for you like moving to Los Angeles and kind of seeing you know different more I guess more progressive obviously I know there was still a ton of racism going in LA it's not a lot of stuff that people want to talk about but especially with the LAPD and the fire department yeah. and all that type of shit but how much better of a condition or situation was well, it? Well I mean it was it was you know it, it wasn't quite as overt you know it was in your face type racism in Los Angeles but I remember very vividly and the first grade at Manhattan Place Elementary School in South Central Los Angeles, near um, like uh, what is that? Like Western and 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 Century Boulevard. Uh, Miss Dodge, my first first grade teacher, she brought four students up to the front of the class. It was me. It was an Asian girl. It was a white boy, and it was a Mexican guy. And so she went down the line explaining the virtues of each race and how you know 
the white boy, Jimmy, this was the best race because they were the hardest working and they, they were the most honest. <laughs> you know, the Asians were the next best, second best because, you know, they, not quite as honest, but hardworking and all that. Now, here are the Mexicans. You can't really trust them because, they, you know, they're, they're not quite as, you know, upfront about things and they'll try and pull a fat. And then we've got here the colored people, and these are the least of, of all four up here. And so I went home and I told my mother what Miss Dodge had said. My mother went up to that school and cussed Miss Dodge out up what up one one part of the school and down the other and just like god damn it bitch if you ever you know say some shit like that to my you know and you know you know how, how grandmommy yes, and my yes, mom and she she and she she, can, <laughs> yeah, she, she don't can play get, that shit she don't play that at yeah. all and, and, and so the point being is that so so the racism was still here but the opportunity my parents wanted all of us to go to UC uh, UCLA okay. uh, UC campuses uh, and they just really uh, respected the fact that Ralph Bunch, who'd won, won a Nobel Peace Prize for diplomacy uh, back in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, Jackie Robinson, all, all the African-Americans of renown, a lot of them had gone through UCLA, and that was always kind of the panacea for them, is they, we can get our, our kids into UCLA. And what happened, uh, all four of us, me and my, uh, me and my uh, uh, four sisters, all five of us actually, uh, we all went to UCLA, either UC Santa Barbara or UCLA. We all graduated from one of the UC campuses. So me and my four sisters, each UC Santa Barbara, my two older sisters, and then my two younger sisters, uh, UCLA and me. And so they fulfilled that dream. But that was, that was one of the main uh, reasons for moving out here. I'm watching um, Memphis State play against UCLA. That was a game Bill Walter was 21 for 22 from the field, 44 points or whatever it was. So I'm watching that in the den. And so the game ends and literally 10 minutes later, the phone rings in the den of our house. My dad answers the phone like, hello? Yeah, uh, yeah, hold on. Uh, Marcus, for you. So I get on the phone like, hello? Yeah, Marcus? It's Coach Wooden. <laughs> you see the game? <laughs> uh, yes, Coach. He's like, well, we'd like for you to be a part of this next year. You think you like that? I was like, yes, Coach. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And uh, I, you know, I hang up the phone, and I'm just blown away. Uh, so, so and, and I think back on it now, I'm sure one of the assistant coaches, one of the recruiting coordinator, Frank Arnold, probably thought it would be a good idea. This would be the kind of seal the deal if you give I mean, me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you call it right now. Trust me, Coach, this would be it. So let's, let's, let's shift a little bit to just UCLA in the 70s. How, how cracking was, was L.A.? How cracking was that campus during that time? Obviously, you had, you know, just so, so much going on in the world between Vietnam War and just kind of all, all the crazy shit that I, I'm a, I was a history major. Obviously, I got to, yeah. was blessed and fortunate to go to UCLA and kind of study all this shit. But as I got older, I always just kind of put myself in your position. I remember when I was on campus, I was just thinking like, damn, what, what was my dad like, you know, as an 18-year-old? Cause we, I mean, obviously, we, we got it a little too cracking. We we got we got a we got a little too going. No, Chris, yeah. kind of the same way. But but what was your experience like in the seventies? Just how how turned up was it? Well, it's interesting because when I went in there in nineteen seventy three, it was just coming off the the Vietnam War and protests. You know, I was watching um, local news as a senior at Crenshaw the year before, and so Bill Walton had led a protest to shut down Wilshire Boulevard to protest UCLA's involvement in the war, whatever it was. And so I'm watching this on the news. So they're taking Bill Walton handcuffed into a paddy wagon, or before he's handcuffed or something, he kind of breaks his hands free and he gives the finger, double finger, fuck Chancellor Young, fuck Chancellor Young, and then they you know, put his head down and put him in a paddy wagon. You know, so I'm watching all this thinking that I was going to have an opportunity in terms of just you know, protests and social awareness and social consciousness and all that. 
I got there and I like to say, you know, that they shut all that down and and and, and they did it by kind of introducing disco <laughs> and, and plaid pants and puka shells and and so, you know, we, we kind of got sidetracked from the protest and, and, and the social consciousness and all that into like doing the hustle and, <laughs> you know, and, and the platforms <laughs> and, and all that, you know, so uh, it was just an interesting time period in terms of being a youth, but UCLA was still, you know, I, I saw Gil Scott Heron and Angela Davis and a guy by the name of Swami X was this white dude that would preach for hours uh, right in the middle of Bruin Walk and would draw crowds of four, five, six hundred people and would just talk about uh, different political topics of the day, social issues of the day. I mean, it was a real vibrant time to be around UCLA. I kind of joke when I talk about the about the about the uh, the, the the hustle and the and the disco and all that, but it was kind of a it was just the beginning or the in the ending of an era of protest and, and student demonstrations and all that good stuff that I thought I was going to have. An, an opportunity to be a lot more actively involved in, but uh, I just kind of I got caught up in the UCLA, then you know, in the, in the wine, women, and song at UCLA is a hard, hard thing to hard thing to fight. 1977, John R. Wooden first first Wooden Award winner, college basketball player of the year. I feel like I feel like even still, a lot of people don't realize how popping you were back then. So 21 year old get drafted third overall by Milwaukee Bucks. Obviously, they, they held the first and third picks that season. Went with Kent Vincent at number one. That proved to be a questionable selection. But uh, what, what was that that culture shift for you like going from UCLA, being the man, obviously, you know, biggest program in college basketball, visibility, to now going to, to Milwaukee? Well, it was tough. And, and, and first, that, that, that UCLA um, senior year, I, you know, I was going to go – hardship at that time to the Denver Nuggets and Larry Brown oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so Larry Brown wanted me Carl Shear was the general manager they had to pull out the merger was that year and so the NBA came down on Denver and said they were going to sign me Denver without me going through the draft just sign me just yeah. there you know, you're, on our, you're on our roster David Thompson Bobby Jones Monty Tao all these that's guys a, that's a fucking squad yeah, right yeah, there. we're just sure. going to sign you and so the NBA got wind of it because Larry Brown's brother Herb Brown was a coach of the Detroit Pistons and I guess Herb had told his general manager, Ozzie Feldman, what Denver was doing. And so they reported it to the league. The league said, if you sign Marcus Johnson without him going through the draft, merger's off. And so Denver had to back out at the last minute. Now, it was told to me by a reporter, Aileen Voizon from the Sacramento Bee, that Larry Brown and Herb Brown, two brothers, didn't speak for 20 years behind that because okay. Larry had told him in confidence and Herb went back and told. So, that, you know, that part of it, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. But 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 so that was 1976, 1977 came back from my senior year, and that was the first year of the uh, John Wooden Award, the very first year that they had established the Wooden Award, and also the first year that they had brought the dunk oh, yeah, back yeah. into college Most basketball. Definitely. The dunk they outlawed it in 1967. Kareem had 56 against USC, his very first game, dunking right and left, outlawed it the next year. And so my workout partner and I, Malik Abdul Mansour, we we we, we thought about it. And we're like, look, the dunk has been gone from college for like 10 years. I'm a dunker. I'm a, I'm a leaper. I got a great vertical working on my legs, you know, continuously. He said, get out there and dunk it, you know, every single time. And so I wound up doing that. And, and like the, the Louisville Cardinals, Joe, were the doctors of dunk that year. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Griffin, a bunch of other leapers. They had 60 dunks as a team. I had 63 dunks by myself my senior year. And the irony is that Coach Wooden didn't like to dunk. I wound up winning the first Wooden Award dunking. Got drafted by the Bucks. They had the first pick. Um, in the draft, they drafted Kent Benson because it was a time when they wanted more white faces and more white stars in the league. They thought the league was too black and it was hurting some of the corporate sponsorships. 
So they wound up drafting him one. They traded the third pick. Uh, they traded for the third pick, traded Twin Nader to Buffalo, got the third pick and drafted me three. But I was pissed off. So every day in practice, the first month, I would dunk on Kent Benson out of Indiana. Talk about dunk. I'd dunk on his ass every single opportunity just because of just, just venting some frustration just because I thought I deserved to be the number one pick. All right, so, so talk to me a little bit about, obviously, playing with Don Nelson, playing with the Bucks in the 80s. You guys had, had some, some great squads back then. And the development of the point forward position. Now, I know, I know you've never claimed to be the first point forward in the NBA. There, were, there was people who played the position before you, but what you do claim is that you coined the term point forward, which wasn't on record until the first time that you mentioned it. Yeah. Obviously. So, so talk to me, and, I, and even now looking at guys like LeBron, just kind of how that position has shifted, about, about that experience and what it, what it meant to you to kind of help lay the foundation to be one of the forefathers of, of the point forward movement. Well, I mean, it means a lot more now than it did then. Then it was just out of necessity. The New Jersey Nets at that time with Darwin Cook and Michael Ray Richardson where their pressure was killing us. And so that was just uh, an adjustment that Don Nelson made to alleviate the pressure. It wasn't like I'm pushing it and doing magic. Johnson, Holla! You know, kind of passes and all that. I'm just, I'm just dribbling the ball to my spot to initiate the offense. And I asked Nelly, so instead of a point guard, I'm like a point forward. He's like, yeah, point forward, I like that. So the next year, Paul Pressey took it and ran with it and gets a lot of credit for being the first one that really ran the position. But like you say, I'm the one that kind of coined, not kind of, but did coin that term back in 1984 in that, in that playoff series against the New Jersey Nets. And yeah, I mean, and it's just kind of a natural extension. But like, like you know, you look back and Rick Barry, uh, John Happy, you look back, Maurice Stokes. Look at some old video of Maurice Stokes, 6'8", 250. He's pushing, he's dishing. You know, we were basketball players. And it wasn't like, you know, we wanted to be pigeonholed. I remember they asked me during the draft if I was a power forward or a small forward. I said, I'm a forward. You know, I averaged 11 rebounds in college, 21 points, 11 rebounds. Yeah. I, 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 averaged, I averaged 20 and 10 as a rookie. You know, 10 rebounds a game at six, six and a half, six, six. You know, and I, I'm just a basketball player. I don't, you know, I do a little bit of everything. I score inside, score outside, I rebound, I, I play defense. And so it's just kind of a natural extension of that mindset of just guys being all around players now that I think we're seeing the game kind of evolve back to with the LeBrons and Kevin Durant and all these guys. Scottie Pippen kind of got it cracking back in the 90s uh, with Michael Jordan, especially when Jordan was out, kind of yeah. initiating everything. But So that's kind of my viewpoint on it is that you know, that position has always been around. I'm just the one that kind of, kind of put a name on it that stuck. And your second year in the league, you put up – Absurd numbers, right? All NBA. I want to say you supplanted Dr. J from the, the All NBA list, and then I mean, you, you told the story. But Coach Nelson came to you and said, you know, he wanted you to kind of play more team ball, kind of lower the scoring, yeah. to get other guys involved. I, I ask you now because I know as a Hooper, me personally, if I'm getting buckets and fucking putting up numbers like that, and a coach is like, "Yo, dog, we need you to, uh, you know, drop your shit down," it's kind of like <laughs> you could you had two options. You could have been like, "Fuck you, I'm, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep yeah. doing this, and we'll see where it goes." I'm a, I'm gonna average thirty and kind of. You know, not necessarily be selfish, but yo, I, I can score the ball at will. Yeah. Like I'm gonna do that, or you you chose the latter to be more of a team player. So as you look back on that, do you harbor any resentment, kind of that I was asked of you, or or now as you're a man in your sixties, when you look back at that moment, how do you feel about that whole situation? Well, I mean, you know, I was averaging 26, shooting 55 percent from the field, and analytics weren't around then. If they were around then, like they are now, then that wouldn't even have been a question because my efficiency, my win yeah, share, exactly. and all that was off the, just off the charts. When I look back yeah. at some of those old stats in terms of uh, applying modern day analytics to what I did that second season, uh, you know, at the time we had a bunch of guys who could score the ball. Myself, Bob Lanier, Junior Bridgman, Brian Winters, all guys that could score between 17 and 20 points a game. So it made sense. Don Nelson saying, you know, I want, you know, we want to get a little bit more balanced scoring. And so my shots went down from 19 to about 16. But looking back on it now, 
you know, the, the only regret that I have, Joel, is that, you know, if I, if I don't, I'm a finalist for the Hall of Fame. If I don't get into the Hall of Fame, it will be because I didn't uh, take a more uh, vocal uh, position in terms of, of, of rebuffing that request by Don Nelson and being like, hey, yeah, F that. I ain't doing that shit. Yeah, you know, I'm, shoot, I'm shooting 55%. I can, instead of 26, I can score 30 and shoot 50%. Why not? Yeah. And so, uh, but I played for my dad as a coach. I played for John Wooden, Willie West, all these great coaches. Don Nelson was a great coach. I had this, 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 this kind of, this is inner kind of kind of respect for coaches in terms of their vision, what they thought was best for the team. And at the time, it wasn't a major deal. I, I was, I was, you know, would have loved to have scored thirty. Me and George Gervin used to go at each other and hang out a little bit and talk about, you know, who's going to lead the league in scoring. Uh, my third year at twenty-three years old, and I'm an average thirty. I'm an average thirty-two. Uh, but to not be able to do that um, um, was was a little disappointing. But you know, overall, man, you know, I just figured it was best for the team and it was something I'd, I'd roll with. Okay. So, I mean, let's shift it now a little bit. Obviously, uh, you know, 10-year NBA career kind of ended, unfortunately, with the, the broken neck. Don't want to bring up too much of that situation, but I remember being a young kid being at that game versus the Mavs, and I wasn't even old enough to remember a lot of shit, but I just remember kind of you going down and knowing that you weren't going to come back home that night. I remember going home after and kind of like, yo, where the fuck is dad at? And then see you in the neck brace and just just talk about that moment, kind of, you know, how you were able to get through. Because that, that's the type of shit that would break a lot of human beings, having the, the love taken away from you, almost, you know, you, not being paralysis and not being able to, to walk and that type of shit being in jeopardy. Yeah. But how, did, how were you able to sustain from that moment and, and push forward? Well, the ruptured disc, ran into teammate Benoit Benjamin and, and had like 10 points in the first five minutes of that game was, you know, and this new shot that I'd worked on all summer was finally kicking in. And then I got a rebound, went to push it up the floor, and there's Benoit Benjamin. All I remember seeing is double zero before I hit him right in the solar plexus, snapped my neck back, ruptured the disc. And it was frustrating. It was frustrating. I'm 30 years old at the time and just coming off an all-star season and, and feel like I got another four or five all-star seasons in me and in, in, in great condition. And that was uh, uh, it was a rough period. I mean, that happened. Uh, like November 20th of 1986 and then you know you know your little brother died in a swimming pool accident a few months later that next year and uh, you know that was kind of the dark days of of my life in terms of alcoholism drug abuse all those negatives that that you can that you can think about I was doing it and um, and so it was just a a really tough period of self-hate and 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 blaming myself for the for the the death of a of a son Marcus Johnson Jr. who'd been through some issues himself health wise through birth and was finally getting healthy and getting back to being normal and then to have that happen, uh, you know it, it it took years man it took years to get through that years and therapy and 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 and, and divorce and, and 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 spousal abuse and all all the things that you could imagine someone going through. Uh, because of, 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 the, of the emotions of dealing with something like that, I went through. Uh, but by the grace of God, I was able to come out on the other side. And, 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 and so now what I do uh, working for the Milwaukee Bucks is, is try to do as much community outreach as I can. I feel so blessed to be in this position that I'm in right now to, 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 to have my senses about me when I was kind of headed in a direction where they, that was not a given. That was not a given back in, in, the, in, in the late 80s, you know, going through what I was going through. Uh, but now I try and do as much as I can for the community and, and uh, being a broadcaster for the Milwaukee Bucks kind of gives me that platform. So I feel blessed to have that. Yes, I, I remember those times, and obviously it was, it was tough as, for me as a kid. I know it was for the rest for Chris and Josh and obviously everybody to kind of see see the situations that were going on. But then I, I remember like 1992-ish, uh, you land in the role for White Man Can't Jump 
And I remember as a kid, you know, you'd always have all these scripts and you'd be kind of auditioning, doing all this shit. But I remember that script in particular, kind of, you know, you would leave them around and I would just go through them. You know, I was big and, and curious and interested in the entertainment industry in Hollywood at that point. But I remember you reading for that part. I think a lot of people don't know that you re- you read for Wesley Snipes' part or Sidney Dean ended up getting casted as a uh, Raymond and obviously what I think is the, the most iconic basketball movie of all time. So so what was that experience like in 1992 for you? Because I, I remember being at the premiere, you know, seeing the movie for the first time. You go rob the liquor store and literally, I kind of you were talking about earlier about just those moments of adoration that you would get from the crowd, but just the whole fucking movie theater just erupting and laughter just like uncontrollable, you know, it's just like, you know, unrehearsed, but just the shit just happens and, and people yeah. just lose their minds. So what was that, that moment for you and, and how has that, mo- that movie and that experience impacted your life moving forward? Well, you know, it, just the audition was, was, was crazy because I went in uh, and Sidney Dean it was who I wanted to read for the lead, but they had, had uh, hired Wesley Snipes and they were really high on Wesley Snipes, but they told me they had another part that they thought I'd be good for. Uh, this playboy, this uh, playground character based on the life of a guy by the name of Reggie Harden. And that was a story that you'd always hear when you came into the league. Reggie Harden in Detroit, uh, the, uh, the drug, drug addicted 6'10 guy straight out of high school in the early 60s who went into a, a neighborhood store in Detroit with a mask on and the guy behind the counter is like, you know, Reggie, you know, what the, what the hell are you doing? Reggie's like, this ain't me, this ain't me. And so you always heard that story coming into the league. And so when I went to, went in to read for the part, I knew that I had to pull a pull a pull a knife is what it said in the script on on Wesley Snipes. So my dad was a barber; he had these straight razors, and I'd seen a movie where this guy did this little nice little thing, pulling out this straight razor and 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 and, and, and straighten it up and, and and attack somebody. So I worked on that all week long. I took in a real razor, and when I read the audition with Wesley Snipes, I got time to pull that knife out, that blade out. I pulled out that straight razor from my dad's barber box and came after Wesley Snipes in the in the audition room, and they loved it and said you're you know. You got the part, but uh, when we start shooting this for real, leave that real, <laughs> leave, leave that real razor at home. We use prop razors around here. You go fuck around, and kill somebody, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but it was a great experience. And Woody Harrelson, Wesley Snipes, and all the great ball players involved, and 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 that's that's kind of what people of of uh, a certain age know me completely as is Raymond from White Men Can Jump. I was doing a a Wooden Award dinner. Uh, was a keynote speaker when Grant Hill was a senior. And uh, I asked the guys in the audience, a lot of ball players, high school, college, college age, you guys remember me from doing anything as a ball player? They kind of looked at me with a blank stare, and I said, now how many of you remember that scene from White Men Can't Jump when I robbed the liquor store? And they just went nuts. Oh, man, that's you, that's you. So uh, it's all good. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, it's a hell of a character to be associated with, but uh, I think I played the hell out, hell out of it, and, uh, and people remember it, so that's the most positive thing. Talk to me a little bit too about kind of broadcasting. Like, what was your entry point? Obviously, now you're an Emmy Award winning broadcaster with the Milwaukee Bucks. Got to come back to Milwaukee after you know years of, of, of being away. So, so, what has that been like for you to make that shift now to re- return back to Milwaukee? Kind of you know where you started your NBA career, and what's what's the situation been like that for you? It's great, man. I mean, it's a good young team, great organization, and, and for me, you know, I was a theater arts major at UCLA. I had my own campus TV show my senior year, closed circuit TV show where I'd interview. Uh, different uh, personalities from around Westwood and Hollywood, and uh, whether they be writers or actors or or producers or whatever. Uh, but uh, so I, I got well versed into the broadcasting uh, uh, techniques and all that at, at, in, in college, and so and I did a lot of work. Um, I put together my own 
uh, specials for the local NBC affiliate in Milwaukee. While I was a player, I'd take a camera guy on the road with me and, and shoot some stuff on the road. So I was I was really into it all along. And then when this opportunity came up about four years ago, I was doing a radio show, a CBS radio show, call-in radio show, drive time, being at the studio at 4 a.m. every day, on from 5.30 to 9. So this came up. Came up and I'm like, I don't want to go back to Milwaukee. You know, I was too cold back there in the wintertime, but I'll go back here and, and talk to the Fox people in the interview. I went back there, and, and when I walked into the arena, there was these workmen doing some cleaning, and they all looked at me, and they're like, Marcus Johnson, baby, we ain't seen you in 30 years. Are you coming back home? Are you coming back home? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. And so, But my point is, is that everything, everything clicked. The synergy was there. The organization's been great. Uh, being able to do some some community outreach as a part of my job for the organization has been great. Uh, Giannis and Kumpo and Chris Middleton, all these guys, Eric Bledsoe, they're just a joy to work with. Uh, Coach Budenholzer, his staff has been great. I mean, I couldn't ask. I mean, it's like it's like I've died and gone, gone to heaven. God couldn't have blessed me any more than having this job, and especially this year with this team, which is on a NBA Finals trajectory. I won't say a championship trajectory, but I'll say an NBA Finals trajectory. I mean, when I look at the Bucks squad, I was going to ask you about that. Obviously, Giannis is one of my favorite players in the league. Just plays the game the right way. He's almost like a, a taller LeBron that kind of hasn't gotten that long-range jumper yet and other elements of his game that you can t- just tell he's going to add and just be unstoppable. But when you look at this squad, and obviously they're on the top of the East right now, they look like they're they're the favorite right now. Obviously, you got some other good squads out of the East, but do you think that this team can beat the Warriors in a seven-game series or beat the Rockets or whoever may come out of the West. Obviously, it'll be the Warriors, but I like to hope. That. Yeah, well, they got to beat Toronto. They're going to have to beat Boston. Coming out of the East, they ain't going to beat Yeah, the, East ain't no Philly, joke. Philly. And you saw what Boston did to Golden State the other night. So it's not a given coming out of the East, but if we do, which means that we'll be, we'll be tested and we would have survived those tests, I think psychologically this team will be in a place in terms of confidence if they get through the Torontos and the Bostons and the Phillies or two of those three that they'll have to meet to come out of the East. They're going to be ready to do what they need to do against the Golden States, the Houston's teams like that. So, um, you know, I, I believe in incremental steps in terms of progress so just getting to the eastern conference finals after we haven't won a first round series in 20 years would be great but but i really believe that the coaching staff the talent we have the new guys uh, uh, nico miritich they brought in Paul gasol i mean now you got these i mean they they just look good in bucks uniforms you know (laughs) sitting on the bench and coming off the bench to go along with the guys that have already played brooke lopez has been just a great 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 addition so I believe our confidence will be at a point now uh, in, in, a, in a final situation where we can compete with anybody. All right, just two, two, two things before I let you go. Obviously, the, you know, one of the greatest players in Bucks history, me growing up, I had no clue. Obviously, it was before I was born. But being able to go back there recently, just kind of see, see, see the love and to see the people. Obviously, it's a great, great, amazing city. The Bucks have decided to, to honor you by retiring your jersey uh, March 24th uh, coming up this month. So what does it mean to you to kind of finally, you know, be able to join, you know, some of the greats in Milwaukee Bucks history with with your jersey hanging up in the rafters? I know I know Delhi had it. They shipped Delhi off. So so (laughs) Delhi. Yeah. Delhi had number eight, man. But it's it's the it's it's the epitome of honors that you can have as a player. I mean, it's something that no one will ever wear that number again. And um, it's, it's, it's been a long time coming. And if it wouldn't have happened, I would have still been happy with the way things have have turned out. Uh, working for the Bucks and, and 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 being a part of this organization, but the fact that they 
have uh, chosen to honor me in this fashion. It just it's touching. It really touches me to my very my very soul, and I'm just honored to to have it happen uh, March 24th. Honored to have my mom at 92 years old still alive. Her birthday's March 25th. The next day she'll she'll fly back to Milwaukee to be a part of it. You guys will be there, friends and and people who are a big a big part of my basketball and personal development will be there. So it's just you know it, it's nothing but nothing but love, man. It's a beautiful thing. All right, last thing for uh, I know you got other shit to do. You're a busy man. Obviously, your 2019 Hall of Fame finalist. Pretend like I'm I'm the Hall of Fame. Go ahead, state your case for me. Why do you belong in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, well, you know, five-time All-Star, uh, played ten years, uh, sacrificed probably you know seven to ten thousand points to for the for the betterment of my team. So that would have put me up around twenty thousand points and probably six or seven All-Star games, eight All-Star games. But other than that, I think I was a guy that played the game the right way, came out and played both ends of the floor, and um, was a team guy, was a team first guy, and basketball is a team sport. And um, I just think between what I did as a as – the, the Naismith Hall of Fame is not just the NBA. It's, it's high school, which I was one of the greatest to come out of L.A., top ten. Uh, college, first winner of the Wooden Award and, and the national championship for under John Wooden. And then my NBA career, I think uh, those things combined – I think make a pretty good case for me being a Hall of Famer. Okay. Ain't nothing wrong with that. All right. Marcus, appreciate you, Dad. Marcus, oh, yeah, I hate trying to be professional before <laughs> one shit, but uh, Dad, appreciate you for coming through. Obviously, uh, uninterrupted podcast network out here getting these flares out. So appreciate you to LeBron and Maverick Carter for giving the Johnson men a platform to really get their ism out. And again, we just want to remind you guys who runs this station? We run this station. <laughs> <laughs>